Amen. Did you get one of the handouts this morning when you walked in? This is what we talk about on Wednesday nights. We have a, a Wait What Wednesday, and uh, we talk about on Wednesday nights more in depth what we talk about on Sunday mornings because we have good conversation during Sundays, but we're limited in our time. And uh, Wednesday nights, we use that as an opportunity to discuss issues, questions, thoughts, comments. And uh, I'm really encouraged by our Wednesday nights. They've been very, very productive, amen, for those that have been there. And um, it's been really good. So I just encourage you to come 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights for that. And this handout will help you keep track of your questions and just to identify and keep moving with us in our, in our sermon. So we're going to continue to talk today about God's holiness. And uh, I thought we were kind of done with that, but I guess we're never done with God's holiness because God is holy and he's asking us to be holy as well. Um, last Sunday we, we celebrated Easter a Resurrection Sunday. Wasn't that a great day? And I pray that our celebration of Easter hasn't turned into a just another holiday. I know how easily holidays can turn in that way, where it's just something that we put on the calendar, and every year we celebrate that holiday like we do, like our birthdays, like uh, all the other national holidays. But I hope and I pray that the Easter holiday hasn't turned into just a one of those typical holidays. Now, maybe Easter may be a little special for some people because it might mean getting some new clothes. It might mean going to the church. Going to church. Um, there's a lot of uh, people that go to church on Christmas and Easter, and that's, uh, that's a big deal for them. It is a big deal, but I would pray that it doesn't become just those days. But I would hope that the radicalness and the truly the proven commitment of God's love would come through that holiday for us because truly, God's love is radical for us. Do you know that? Do you know how much he really loves us? It's proven on that day by the fact that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. That's the proof of God's love for us. So I, I pray, and I continue to pray for our church and for our role in this community, and I pray every week, Lord, what do we speak about every week? And what, what do you have us to take this time that we share together, spend it Chasing the truth of God's word. I know that God is a loving God and he loves us more than what we can ever realize. We never can overemphasize God's love. But at the same time, we shouldn't limit his expectations of the level of commitment that he wants from us. So many times we will overemphasize the love of God and underemphasize our commitment back. We will overemphasize God loves us so much and all the same time we won't say to people, but you need to love him back. We need to say to ourselves, because he loves me so much, my goal, my desire, my, my expectation, my responsibility is to share my love back at the same level of commitment that he's given it to me. That's a big, that's a big challenge, isn't it? But God, in his love for us, never, ever limits our responsibility to love him back. A loving God is, is not just a teddy bear that we cuddle when we feel like it or we cuddle when we need a little, little support. No, God's love is an all-in, totally committed love. And that's what Easter proves to us, is that Jesus was all-in in his love for us. Amen? And that's the kind of commitment we need to have for him. I've been reading a book over the past number of weeks it's right here by Michael Brown. 
titled Go and Sin No More. It's an awesome book. I would, I would recommend it for anybody to read it. That You will be challenged greatly. I'm going to spend some time today in that book again um, because it's really powerful in the fact that God calls us to be holy and committed to it. I just want you to understand the fact that we are called to be holy, but holiness is a, is a commitment. And so we're going to be holy and we're going to be committed to it if we're going to be found pleasing to the Lord. Amen? Does that make sense? I hope it will as we get through this message today. Let's understand this much, that Jesus forgives any sin as long as there is a true repentance and godly sorrow. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there's any sin that is not forgivable? The only sin that's not forgivable is the sin that doesn't come along with repentance and godly sorrow. (laughs) If you're not repentant, and if you don't have godly sorrow, then there is no forgiveness for the sin. Sin is forgiven when we have a repentant heart with a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow, but a godly sorrow that says, I am sorry that I ever did it. Not sorry that I got caught. Worldly sorrow says, I'm sorry I got caught. That's not repentance. God forgives anything that you would have done in the past if you come to him with a true heart of sorrow, godly sorrow and repentance, saying, God, forgive me. Don't lead me down that path anymore. But after that, after that, he says to every person, go and sin no more. Do you remember the example of the time Jesus was confronted with the Pharisees and the Pharisees brought this woman that was caught in the act of adultery? And they had all these questions for Jesus. What are we going to do with her now, Jesus? What do you do with her now? Are you going to stone her? What are you going to do with her, Jesus? Jesus quietly bent down and he wrote some things in the sand and when he looked up, People were getting a little fidgety because maybe they were reading what he was writing and maybe, maybe he was writing their sins in the sand. But he looked up and he said, he who has no sin cast the first stone. And one by one, what happened? They started to leave. And it wasn't long and they were all gone and the lady that was caught in the act of adultery looked up at Jesus and with confusion in her eyes. Jesus asked her, where are your accusers? And she says, we're not here. And he says, then neither do I accuse you. You're forgiven. Obviously, Jesus saw a repentant heart here in this woman. It doesn't, the scripture doesn't say that. But if she wouldn't have a repentant heart, if she was just there because she got caught and not sorry for what she had done, Jesus couldn't have said these next words. But he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he said, go and sin no more. Those five words were very important to her life after that fact. Yes, that moment she was saved, that's positionally holy, and she was positionally sanctified, but then comes the living it out day after day where Jesus says, now you're forgiven, now go and sin no more. I love that. That is the biggest challenge that we can have, that fact that Jesus would forgive, and then he would say, okay, you're forgiven, now live in it. Live that way. Live as a forgiven person. Don't go back into the same muck and mire. Michael Brown says something like this. He says, it's unfortunate that many that get saved 
quite possibly never hear their pastor say those five very important words, now go and sin no more. Quite often, it's sad, but quite often in our churches today, at least in America, in the westernized churches, that rather than preach the fact that we don't sin anymore, we will overemphasize, we will emphasize and overemphasize the love of God. And that we will give people the milk of God's word that emphasizes God's love and his compassion and his mercy and his grace, which is all true. And then we will say, now that you're saved, God just wants to give you a happy life. He wants to give you all the desires of your heart. He just wants to give you happiness and joy and peace and, and enjoy this great life that he's given us. And that's all true. I, I'm not saying that's not true, but there's so much more to this. It's more than just having a, a, a one life to live, so let's live it with the gusto that we can enjoy this life. There's more to it than just living in the grace and enjoying life and trusting God to bring everything I want. He promises to give everything we need. We maybe change it to say, God, give me everything I want. And then we're frustrated because maybe we're wanting things that we really don't need. Maybe we're wanting things that God says, I know it's not good for you, but we want it. And so we pray, God, give me my wants. And he's saying, I'm going to give you your needs. There's a difference. After all, he is your heavenly, loving, heavenly father. And, and he's, his, his whole goal, his whole goal is to just make you happy. <laughs> right? Yeah, maybe. I don't think so, though. I don't think that's his goal is to make me happy. His goal is that I would share eternity with him in heaven, and that's going to mean things are going to be requested of me and required of me in this life that maybe aren't the things that I want, but they're the things that I need, and he promises to give us everything that we need. So, yes, there is a time that we are to live on the milk of God's word. I get that. The Bible talks about that. When we're young Christians, we live on the milk because we have to be brought up gently. It's like, it's like a, a toddler. We've seen a, we have a lot of little kids in our church right now with, with uh, Tyler and Hannah and their family and the others that are coming in. And, and we wouldn't give bison or buffalo, they're the little boys, we wouldn't give them a steak to chew on. They don't have any teeth yet. We wouldn't give them a steak. Even if they had teeth, we wouldn't give them a steak. No, we, we give them some soft food, some things that are highly nutritious to them. And because they need the milk, they need baby food at this point in time. And so do so many baby Christians. But there comes a time, though, as we grow up, we have to change our diet. Physically, we have to change the diet of these little babies so that they will grow up to be strong men and strong women. And so we have to change the diet. Well, there's also a spiritual diet that needs to change from the milk of God's word into the meat of God's word. And there are some churches that never get past the milk. There are some preachers, there are some doctrines, there are some groups that just want to live on the milk of God's word, which is the happy stuff, which is the stuff that says God will give you all of your desires. But when you get into the meat of God's word, we find out that God has something different to say. He's got some things called um, holiness, some righteousness, and some living above sin that come into this play. And so we are a, we are a church here that, that gives milk, but we have to also give meat. Like I've said many times before, a church is a one-room schoolhouse. We have some baby Christians here. We have some non-Christians here. We have some super-Christians here. We have some saints here. 
And they all have a different diet. So I'm asking those that, that are into the meat of God's word, if we, if we have to give some milk every once in a while, be patient. And for those that are on the milk, if we get a little meat every so often, then maybe it's time to ask some questions about what did he really mean by that. That's kind of what Wait Wednesday is, is a time where we kind of chew the meat again. We, come down and we, we, we chew it up a little bit more, we talk about it more, we digest it a little bit more. So it's important that we focus on where we're at in life, making sure that we're doing the things that God is asking us to do, and then um, eat appropriately. <laughs> eat nutritious food spiritually as well as physically. So today I want to continue to talk about what does that look like. Well, I want to use Matthew chapter 5 as our text this morning. And, but it's interesting, as I started to look at this, it starts off with Jesus. This is talking about the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins the, this whole d- dialogue with the thing that we call the Beatitudes. I want to let them kind of set the tone, okay? So let's just read Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we read the Beatitudes, I don't know about you, but I, I get the overall feeling here that this is a, and people misinterpret so much the Beatitudes for this great, big, comfortable, peaceable, loving God that is just blessing everybody, and, and it's so soft and cuddly that, that it's just about making life easy and politically correct to be one of his followers. That it's just kind of people, so they, they, they look at this and they just focus on all the blessing that God has and all the compassion. And I'm, not a, and I'm not saying God isn't compassionate because Jesus is all about compassion and I'm so glad that he is. He is about helping people and helping the unlovable and every other person that's in a low position. But at the same time, Jesus and God, the Father, are all about justice and righteousness and holiness calling everyone to live above the sinful desires of the flesh. So a loving God can be defined better as he isn't a pushover God. (laughs) A loving God isn't a pushover God that accepts the excuses of sin and human depravity. God knows we can do better. Remember, we just celebrated Easter, didn't we? We just celebrated the Resurrection Sunday where Jesus died a a horrific death and suffered a terrible beating because of one reason, because of sin in our life. Jesus died because of sin in our life. So why would we think that God isn't absolutely demanding of us that we who are professing Christ as well, why isn't he demanding a total abstinence and a total disdain in our life for sin as well. If Jesus died for it, why should we play with it? You ever think about it that way? If Jesus died for you in a, the condition that we were in as a liar and a thief and, a, and, and, and uh, um, all kinds of other depravity that we were in, 
gossiper, slanderer, drunkard, sexual addict, whatever, if Jesus died for those sins, why do you think we should go back and play with them? It cost him a great price. So with that then, God is saying, no, my expectations of you is that you would see exactly what Jesus did in that sacrifice and you would have the same uh, disdain for it as we do. It's the enemy that would deceive us into thinking that God's love trumps our sin, so don't worry about it. God loves you so much that he understands that you're not going to be perfect, and so don't worry about it. Go enjoy your life. God loves you, and he wants you to enjoy yourself just the way you are. God accepts you just the way you are, but then he's going to do his job to change you into what he wants you to be, right? That's some of the meat part of the word of God. Yes, God loves us, and he accepts you just the way you are, but he has other things in store for you. God is aware of the enemy's plan to deceive. Matthew chapter 24, verses 24 and 25. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, have I, I have told you ahead of time. Jesus is telling us that there is coming a time that there are going to be those that are going to come away, going to come around you, and they're going to try to deceive you to be politically correct and to be uh, compassionate with this world and not take a holy stand because he, the enemy, wants us not to see it that way. The enemy wants us to see God is so loving and so kind and so gracious that we can just be who we are and he's going to be good with that. Well, I thank the Lord that he accepts me, but I also thank him that he wants to change me. We find in Jesus' teaching that he is being true to teach the truth of what we need to do when we see the temptation of sin coming into our lives. Jesus is teaching the truth of what we need to do when he and when we see temptation of sin coming into our lives. Temptation is not to sin, but he knows that the temptation can quickly turn to sin if I play with it. So what do I do with it? I have to be careful here. I have to take it captive. Let's go down a little bit further in Matthew chapter 5, and this is actually our text for the day. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. All of this is setting up what Jesus is saying right now. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30. Read it along with me. It says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go through hell or go into hell. Now, if you think that Jesus was not serious about this, he says it again. Okay, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 through 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Still not convinced? Mark chapter 9. Verses 43 through 48. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. 
And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. We better pray. Father, would you teach us what this means? Lord, would you give us your word, your understanding of what you're indicating now in these passages? Because these are hard passages. This is true meat. And would you just train us and teach us what you'd have for us to say today? In Jesus' name. So what is Jesus really trying to say here? There are few things that are more radical than the image of an amputation. An amputation is a final thing. Once whatever it is is amputated, it's not coming back. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's gone and it's final. And so when we think of a, a limb being amputated, uh, we think of a limb that is something that is, there's something wrong with it. Uh, maybe you've got frostbite and gangrene has set in and your, your toes have turned black and maybe your foot and, and that gangrene is now, um, a, it, it's, it's an infection and if you don't get rid of that gangrene, it's going to get in your bloodstream and it's going to potentially bring you much more damage and even possibly death. So the answer is cut it off, whatever that extreme, whatever that, that, that limb is. Or some other type of a major trauma that requires something to be removed. But we don't think of removing perfectly healthy hands. We don't think of, perfect, of removing perfectly healthy feet or plucking out an eye that can see well. That's just unheard of. So why would Jesus use such a horrific example of cutting off things that are good? Cutting off feet, cutting off hands. I mean, that's it's pretty drastic, isn't it, that Jesus would talk this way? Well, I think he speaks this way as a way to help us understand the seriousness of sin and the eternal consequences it results in if we don't take a committed attitude and action towards it. I think Jesus' purpose here is to get us to think, to stop what we're doing and think about what he's saying. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Putting something to death is violent, and it's final. Let's, let's recognize what Jesus is saying here. Put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, put to death. Something, that, something that, you, that you kill is a violent action, and it's final. We are, we are not to just to shove it down somewhere and file it away someplace where, in our life so that we can manage it better or deal with it later. Putting to death something is not just managing it. Not just putting it in another compartment of your life to come back and say, oh, I'll deal with this later. Right now, God, I've got other things to do. Putting to death is something that's, that's it, it's, it's a violent action, and it's a final action. Nothing comes back to life. Putting something to death is violent, and it's final. 
not intended to come back to life. I know this is difficult to think about because we don't like to think about things that require us to examine ourselves this way and to actually put ourselves on the chopping block, so to speak. It's not popular. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. <laughs> we want to be able to enjoy life and get to heaven, don't we? I mean, that's, that's the truth. But is that what Scripture is saying here? Can we take these passages like this and make them say anything different than what they say? Can we make them say it's an easy road to walk down? Can we make them say that we can have the luxury of pleasing our fleshly nature and pleasing God at the same time? Is there any way we can twist these passages this way? That we can live by our desires and if they don't line up with God's word, that somehow we can change God's word to match up what we want it to say? And that then we aren't, so that we're not convicted by this? At the same time, by speaking this way, am I saying that we need to totally avoid anything that is pleasurable in this life? And we're to take a vow of poverty and be a self-mutilator as a way to please God. No, I'm not saying that either. Neither one of those are correct. We can't change God's word from what it says into something we want it to say, nor are we to be a self-mutilator and to, be, to go to that extreme. So what we need to do is we need to grasp, however, the seriousness of the way that God looks at sin and the way that God looks at our life and the sin in our, that we're encumbered with and how, and then he asks us, how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to deal with the sin that's in your life? Because we all have it. What are we doing with the gift of Jesus today? The commitment that he made to us, are we treating it as seriously as he did? Are we treating sin as seriously as Jesus treated sin? Or are we somehow reducing it down to our own level of acceptability and our understandability so that we can be, make up our own religion, if you will, that we can control everything according to our desires and our needs? <laughs> I think we have a tendency to reduce God's word into something that we can deal with rather than, rather than live up to what God's word's saying. We need to read scripture and believe it, not twist it. Scripture is telling us the truth that we need to obey and surrender to it rather than distort it into something that I can manage in my own way, my own power. Does this make sense? Are you okay? Are you okay with this kind of preaching? Are you okay with this kind of teaching? Or would you rather just have the milk that says do what you want and then believe God to forgive? Well, I like meat. <laughs> I really do. I'm challenged by it. I, I'm, I'm dealing with these truths just like you would be challenging with these truths. So I'm, I'm not afraid to give them to you because I really do care about you. I care about my life. I care about your life. Notice that, if we go back to our text, notice that Jesus is talking about three different parts of the body that we're to deal with here. The hands, signifying what we do. Cutting off your hand, it signifies what we do. The feet are signifying where we go. And the eyes are signifying what we look at. Our hands is what, are what we, do, what we do, our feet is where we go, and our eyes is what are we looking at. 
Let, let, me, let me just ease your mind here. I didn't bring a cleaver today, so we're not going to be cutting off any limbs or, or plucking out any eyes, just so you know, okay? We're not going to be doing that today. But, but at the same time, I, I, want to know, I want us to know that Jesus uses these physical examples of something as drastic as this as a way to get our attention that we can turn this physical example into a spiritual example so that we can appreciate the seriousness of sin and the radical nature of what our commitment and our action needs to be to deal with it. So, so we're not going to be cutting anything off today other than we're going to be dealing with our sin nature. We need to cut that off today. We need to be serious about that spiritually. We can't minimize what Jesus is talking about on a spiritual and disciplined level of what he requires of us. It's so tempting. I understand it. It's so tempting to minimize this and say, no, that's not what Jesus really means. Well, I think he is. I don't, I don't, I don't think we can take the, we shouldn't take the, the approach that we can minimize what Jesus is talking about. Michael Brown gives some examples in his book about what this means. What, what does it mean to cut your hand off or what does it mean to um, cut your foot off or gouge out your eye? And I want to I'm gonna, I'm gonna read some of his examples today. So I've asked Alec and I've asked Melissa if they would read. This is out of Michael Brown's book. Alec, would you hold that up and would you read that clearly for us today? Yeah, sure. Let's say you're a computer whiz, spending 10 hours a day developing new programs. Half of that time, you're, you're doing research on the Internet, downloading information about technology, technological advances in your field, but you also spend some time every week surfing the internet for websites for you. Website is like your right hand, connecting you to the outside world through emails and websites, serving as the mainstay of your life and the key to your livelihood, but it's also causing you to sin. What do you do? If you can't break your sinful habit, then you need to cut off the internet no matter how much it costs you to make the, make the break and regardless of the inconvenience and loss, tell your employer that, that you can still work on computers but cannot be on the internet. And if that's not possible and you still find yourself on the porn site, then you may have to sever your ties with the computers and the internet entirely. This is what it means to, what this is what it means to off your hand if it causes you to sin. It would be better for you to work as a janitor and earn less money than to keep your high-paying job and lose your soul. That's what Jesus meant. Amen. Thank you. What about, thank you, what about uh, where you go? Go ahead, Melissa. Let's say that you're a young woman that began as a worship leader at your church, and you were discovered and are now on a way, on a path to stardom in Christian music. Your voice is lovely, you're beautiful, and there's something charismatic about you, something special. The problem is, the path that you've found yourself on is a one of self-exaltation. One where you, not Jesus, has become the center of attention. One where you're asked to make money from your music. One where outward performance becomes more important than inward purity. Little by little, you find yourself backsliding, losing intimacy with the Lord, forfeiting the reality of the words that you now sing professionally. Every time you come out in front of a crowd, you realize that worship of God is no longer the goal. What a wonderful concert it is now, and the goal always looking to the bigger and better one to advance your career. So what do you do? Cut off your foot and throw it away. 
Go back to being a worship leader in your old home church and say farewell to the great gospel career, if that's what it takes to maintain your relationship with the Lord. In human terms, that's a great price to pay, and that's what Jesus was illustrating. To lose a hand or a foot in this world is tragic, but losing your soul in the world to come is a million times more tragic. Amen. Thank you. So what do you think Michael's trying to say here? Do you, trying to, do you think that he's really trying to say that um, we have to give up our jobs? We have to give up our opportunities? Life is made up of many opportunities, and, and most of them are good and morally neutral at worst. But the opportunities aren't the problem. The problem comes when the opportunity gives us a purpose or a cause to sin. So the problem is not the opportunity, but the, but the problem is our response to that opportunity. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a man working at a computer, writing new programs. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a successful gospel singer. There's nothing wrong with that. But when those things, as an example, take precedence over really truly what Jesus not being at the center point of their life anymore, that's a problem. Maybe it's not your what you do. Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's your pastime activities that are the problem. We should be asking ourselves the questions, is Jesus proud of what I do in my spare time? Would I do what I do if he was with me? Would I think about the things I think about if I knew that he was aware of them? Would I take him to the places that I go? Would I introduce him to the people that I hang out with and I associate with? See, if I have to do anything in secret thinking that I don't want to do this in public, then it should give me pause to think that maybe I'm going places I shouldn't be going. Maybe I'm seeing things I shouldn't be seeing. Maybe I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing. That's what Jesus is trying to say in this example of cutting off your feet or cutting off your hand or gouging out your eyes. We're encouraged all through Scripture to avoid everything that would hinder our committed life for Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Can I just tell you that the omniscience of God sees and hears and knows and understands everything you think? Everything that's going through your mind that you think is in secret, can I tell you that in heaven it's not a secret? Everything that you're doing that you think is in secret in heaven is exposed. And it's going to be exposed come your judgment day as well. If I was wise, I wouldn't indulge in these things because I would know that um, there is a great cloud of witnesses. And that great cloud of witnesses in this case is Jesus. I'm not saying that everybody in heaven sees behind closed doors. But the most important one does, and that's Christ. And that's the only one that matters. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Examine all things. Firmly hold on to what is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Abstain from all appearances of evil. Other translations say reject Avoid, keep away from even the appearance of evil. Don't have anything to do with the things that Jesus died for. 
I think maybe if you, if you have a struggle or maybe think that, oh, it's okay for me to do this, think about the fact that it's for that thing that you're struggling with that Jesus died for. That pornography, that lie, that object of your affection, that lustful look or whatever it is, Jesus died for those things. And if I can't get over it myself, think about it that way. Is it, was it worth it for Christ to die over it that I can play with it today? This should help us to look for that holiness and, 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 and making those decisions. I think we should decide for a wisdom's sake. Decide before you get yourself into a compromising situation what you're going to do to get out of it. <laughs> Don't wait until you get into the problem to make a, make a choice. For example, I'll just tell you, when I was working in the automotive industry, I entertained a lot. That was my job. I entertained a lot of the guys. I've sold factory automation, and my job was entertained. And I would take guys to restaurants, and we would have things, they would have things to drink and so forth, and that was my job. I made a decision early on in my life that when I got myself in a situation where there were drinks in that crowd or in the meal or whatever, I just knew I wasn't going to partake. So I just knew when I got into that point, I've said, no, thank you, water's fine, or I'll have a soda, but no, thank you, I don't drink, that's fine. And so I, I just knew when I got there that I wasn't going to do that. It helped me avoid the situations where I would have to compromise later. And I'm not saying that one drink's going to send you to hell, but what is that one drink going to do? It, it, it's a slippery slope. It's poor for my example, for my witness. At the same time, it puts me in a position where maybe I'm going to go to two or three or four, and I don't know where I'm going to stop, you see? The alcoholic, he's not, he's not upset about the last one. He's upset about the first one that he had. And so that's just one example of, of, of putting yourself in a position and making the decision up front before you get in that position. Maybe you're dating and maybe you're having a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe you need to say no. When we get to that point of, of getting too far, we're not even going to start because we, know, we all know how emotions go. And we know once you start, it's hard to stop. So just make a decision up front to say no in our dating, in our courting relationship, whatever it is, no matter how old you are, <laughs> you just don't go there. You're not going to put yourself in that position where you could be tempted beyond your ability be wise. Be wise. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus talks more about what we need to do with our discipline. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Is there anything, let me ask you the question, is there anything in this short life that we live that is worth an eternal loss? Is there anything that you can enjoy for the 80 years in this world that is worth losing something for eternity over? I don't think so. In the context that Jesus is talking about here, not just our loss, but we talked, I talked about it a minute ago, but being a stumbling block to others. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 and 7. This is a, a really an important passage that I think we need to appreciate what Jesus is trying to say to us here. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the, of the things that cause people to stumble. 
Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Wow. This is huge. Because I have liberties. You have liberties. And if I use those liberties to cause someone else to sin, serious consequences. Causing one to stumble due to our choice of a questionable freedom that causes others to sin will cause great regrets for both people. When you see the end for what it, for what it is, is it worth it? Boy, this is a huge topic because there's lots of things that we might say, well, I have liberty to do that. But if I take my liberties and if somebody is watching me, who are these little ones he's talking about? Well, these little ones are young Christians. Those little ones may be grandchildren or children. Anyone that's watching you, any, that you're in a, a, an area of influence over, anyone that's watching you are those little ones that Jesus is talking about. And if I do anything in my life that would cause someone else to sin, that they could look at me and say, well, he did it, therefore I can do it. It says, Jesus is saying, because remember, he's seeing all things. What he's saying is that it would be better for that person to have a large millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the bottom of the sea. Is that serious or is that serious? How long are you going to live at the bottom of the sea with a millstone tied around your neck? Not very long. So Jesus is looking at this serious again. Again, he uses uh, hyperbole here. This isn't, I mean, literally, but it's all about the seriousness of sin, all about the seriousness of the appearance of sin and how we are to live a life above that. So if you're going to be holy, you need to be committed to it. Jackie, would you, would you come as we wind this up, please? Now, maybe you're wondering how you apply this to your life. What are your spiritual hands? What are your spiritual feet? What are your spiritual eyes? Those things that need to be removed in your life. Well, you're the only one that knows that. Well, you and Jesus. I don't. I'm not going to give you that list because I have to deal with my own issues. I deal with my own life. I have them. You have them. No matter how old we are, no matter how long we've been a Christian, we have things that God is continuing to perfect us in our holiness. There are things that we need to remove. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's the fact that I have issues that nobody else knows about. Those are the things here that are very personal. But that's the truth of what God's Word is saying. Jesus taught the hard things. He did teach hard things, didn't he? And he expected his followers to make the tough decisions to follow him at any cost. So this morning, I pray that these messages would cause one to think, cause you to reevaluate your life, whatever it is, no matter what level you are, whether you're a baby Christian or a mature Christian, I just want to bring the challenge that the Lord brings to me to bring to you to think about our life. I want you to know how much God loves you. And I want you to know how much he's concerned about you. But in the same token, I want you to know he loves you so much that he speaks truth. And we need to see the truth for what it is in love. 
and knowing that he truly has our best interest in mind. That's all he has for us is our best interest in mind. He doesn't want to do anything to you that would cause you harm other than to bring you eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we know that sometimes teachings can be hard, but I know at the same time how hard it must have been there in your time when the, the, the times that you were teaching and people walked away from you too. You loved them anyways, but you didn't change the word. You didn't soften it. You, you didn't change the truth to make it relative truth. The truth is the truth. And we need to change our hearts and our lives to match up and to adjust to your truth. So God, I pray that you would empower us with the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace that travels with us called empowering grace that would strengthen us to be able to say no to the, say, to the things that you say no to and to say yes to the things that you say yes to because you have many more things saying yes that would bring blessing and goodness into our hearts and our lives than you have to say the things no to if we would only listen and apply these things. So Father, I just ask now that you would do your work, that you would just come to your people, settle in among us now, and do some dissecting. That we would take the time to allow the Holy Spirit to come into our life and ask him, Father, what do you want to cut out? What shouldn't I be seeing? What shouldn't I be watching? Where shouldn't I be going? What should I be doing in regards? What should I do instead? What are the positive things? What are the good things I should be doing instead of the other things? Fill your heart with the love of God. The more you fill your heart with the love of God, the less room there's going to be for the evil. So focus on the good. Focus on what Jesus wants you to do. And avoid the things that would be even appearance of, of evil. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we commit our heart and life to you now. And we just say, do your work. This morning, as always, the altars are open. If you would like to come up and pray and spend some time with the Lord, the altars are open. Jackie, we're going to sing the song as we're our closing song today. But if you want to pray, the altars are open. I'm here to pray with you. Others are here to pray with you. You can just pray by yourself. But don't minimize the importance of what Jesus is talking to us today. Amen. Jackie, let's sing. Stand with me if you would. This is my desire to honor you. Lord, with all my heart, I worship you.
Father, we just come to you now, Lord, but that's our prayer, that you would have your way in us today. And everything, Lord, that we're doing, everything that we're saying, every place that we're going, God, just lead us and direct us. We seek your wisdom. We seek your counsel. Make us holy before you as you're holy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Be blessed this week as you go. In Jesus' name, amen.